0: One of the fundamentals of innovation is being able to do user research, not by asking people, what do you want and getting people to design, but rather by understanding pain points and understanding how do you ask those questions in a way that you're not leading your witness, but really figuring out what they need. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we
1: discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us again. I hope you're having a great week. We're kind of easing our way towards spring, I guess, depending on what part of the world you're in. My guest today is Radhika Dutt. Now Radhika, she wrote a book and it's a really great book and we'll talk about that. And we also had her speak at our own company kickoff for 2023 and she did a phenomenal job. Just she's such a great speaker. And we asked her, would she be willing to stop by and join us on the podcast? And she said, yes. So Radhika, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Paul. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah. And where are you calling in from?
0: I'm in Boston. It's been home for a while, but actually, you know, I've just lived in so many countries. And I think you'll see that in the book where I really try to uh, be inclusive in terms of, you know, including stories from all over the world in, in representing how we can build world changing products.
1: Yeah, yeah. your title, and also we'll talk about your website, your, your whole focus is radical product thinking. So how did you get started on that? And what does that mean, radical product thinking?
0: Yeah, so my background is that, you know, I started by studying engineering. And so I have this engineering background, and that's really how I think. But what I found was, you know, the way we build products in the world, that approach has been dictated by the silicon valley mentality that really evolved from venture capital right how does venture capital work the way it works is you invest in 10 different things you just need one of those to succeed and the rest in fact you want it to fail quickly so that you don't waste your money investing in something that's middling about so you either want it to go big or just fail quickly
1: right and so
0: That venture capital mentality really pervaded the whole startup ecosystem. And startups learned that, well, you have to fail fast, learn fast, you know, try lots of different things, and hopefully one of those things works out. And that mentality, driven by a few successes, the unicorns that we hear about, and that survivor bias led us to believe that this is how we should be building products. that is such a contrary approach to the engineering mindset that we learn is the right way to do things, right? You, you have a hypothesis, then you test it out, and then you grow it, and you invest in it more based on testing these hypotheses mm-hmm. systematically yeah. versus the Silicon Valley mindset of, oh, just try a bunch of things and then see <laughs> what works, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and so what I realized was, when I was starting out in my career, I always thought that, well, maybe these people just know better than me, didn't sit right with me, but somehow right. I thought, okay, but well, clearly they seem to know what they're talking about. And over time, I kept seeing the same pattern of failures and what I started calling product diseases. It was the same set of product diseases, and sometimes I had caught them too. And at some point, I said, okay. I feel like I've learned how to avoid these diseases, but I've learned this through hard lessons. So is it just that we're all doomed to learning how to build products through hard lessons and trial and error, or wouldn't this be ideal if there is a way to use the intuition that I've built so far and be able to translate that into a systematic step-by-step approach for? Here's what we should do instead. So that was the hypothesis out of which radical product thinking was born. Um, And I was talking to two colleagues at the time, ex-colleagues and saying, gosh, you know, this is such a frustration. And they were also seeing these same product diseases. And so we we created this framework of radical product thinking and we put it out there just on a website. And, you know, we decided to test this out and talk about it at a conference. And the first conference we spoke at there was a woman who came by afterwards and she goes, oh my God, are you the creators of radical product thinking? <laughs> we felt like mini celebrities. You know? uh, yeah. and, and it turned out that she had found this completely organically. And then she talked about it at a conference, uh, telling so many other people how this was useful. <laughs> and that was the, the beginning of the journey where I decided, okay, there was a book that was necessary to, to write. Um, and I then spent three years writing it.
1: Wow. It's a great book. It's very readable. And I think all of what you just went through, I can imagine our listeners are saying, yep, 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 that's me. Yes, I understand. I can relate to all of it, you know, because we're all trying to get our products out. This concept of diseases, that was a really neat thing to read. So what are some examples of diseases?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you some of my favorite ones and ones that I've caught as well, right? Um, So one is obsessive sales disorder. So especially in companies that are sales-led, this is such a common disease. And this is one that I've contributed to, where you know your salesperson comes to you with this glimmer in their eye and they say, oh, you know, if we just add this one custom feature, we can win this mega deal. And uh, it sounds really attractive, mostly harmless. So we say, yes, let's do this. And pretty soon you know we're sitting with this stack of contracts at the end of the year and a whole roadmap is just driven by what we have to make good on so that's obsessive sales disorder right another example that i had caught early on was the disease i call hero syndrome this is especially common in startups so startups often measure success By how much funding have we raised? How much traction are we getting in terms of, you know, press news or press coverage? For example, very often startups are so focused on going big and scaling that we forget to focus on what's the problem we're really setting out to solve. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about one more disease, which is common both in big companies and small, which is pivotitis it's this disease where you know we keep switching directions because we keep we've learned that the way to build products or successful companies is to just keep pivoting until you find product market fit and what i found instead is you literally have 2 to 3 pivots before you run out of either money or momentum pivots are like silver bullets that you have to use really deliberately and intentionally and otherwise, you catch pivotitis. And maybe later in this podcast, we can talk about how we avoid some of these diseases, like yeah,
1: pivotitis. yeah. I was I was gonna almost gonna ask if you had one of these diseases to pick, and you could give an example of how a company got out of it. Right? It's, okay, I got this disease. How do I get out of it? Right? Maybe you have an example or two to share on that.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about pivotitis because yeah, that's I think one where. We have always learned that you have to keep pivoting. And here I am saying, you know, you have only two to three pivots. So what do you do, right? The answer is that we have to pivot deliberately and intentionally. So what does that mean? It means that we have to have a clarity of what's our vision? What's the problem that we're setting out to solve? Why does that problem need solving? Because honestly, maybe it doesn't need solving. And then finally talk about what is the end state you're going to bring about and how you will bring it about with your product. Right? What happens often is we don't have this clarity of vision when we start out. In fact, we haven't really done the necessary user research. We haven't understood the market and the problem well enough to be able to craft such a vision. And so what happens is we start with this fluffy vision statement. Take your pick, like uh, change warehousing and um, yep. shopping experience, right? Like whatever that sort of an experience. Big themes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Those vision statements sound grand, but they're not helpful in terms of really knowing what's the problem, how are we going to solve it? Why does it need to be solved? So to avoid pivotitis, first, you need that stake in the ground and saying this is the problem and setting out to solve okay well then you might start out solving it and then you discover actually you know what i was dead wrong i was wrong about whose problem we were setting out to solve it turned out that they don't have this problem and it's someone else who has this problem or the problem is slightly different or maybe you know here's what the actual reason is that the status quo is unacceptable when you discover this the right way to approach a pivot is then to rewrite your vision statement and share with your team here's what we thought before this was our hypothesis and here's our new hypothesis based on what we've learned and this is what we're going to try out next So now your pivot is not just this random swing with the wind and, you know, a whiplash for your team. Instead, it's very deliberate and it's a learning process when you're bringing your whole team with you on the journey. And that's how you avoid pivotitis. So the reality in terms of avoiding product diseases is being vision driven, which means having clarity of vision and very systematically translating it into a strategy hypotheses priorities and daily activities and that's what the book is about helping you take the step-by-step approach
1: yeah i love that i mean i've been through some pivots and i don't think we documented or wrote it as clear as you just described right so you pivot and you go but but there's sort of a you're missing something. The why is not sharp enough or not clear enough. And I think that's some really good advice there into how to, how to pivot, right? That was, that was really helpful. You also, in your book, you talk about three pillars of radical product thinking. A, a lot of it was about change. Can you share your thoughts about that?
0: Yeah. Traditionally, we've always thought about product as it is a physical or digital thing. Whereas what I've realized is product is really a way of thinking and it's really high time that we change or rethink what product itself means. What I've realized is product means that it's your mechanism to create change. And that's one of the fundamental philosophies of radical product thinking. Why is this so important? When you think about your product as a mechanism for change, it means anything can be your product whether you're a freelancer doing graphic design, or you're in government creating a policy, um, or you're building software, right? Anything can be your product if it's your mechanism to create change. And so when you think about your mechanism in that way, then you can start to be systematic about it. And it means you can apply this idea no matter you know, what your field is, so that you can very systematically create that change. And I want to give one example. You know, I was once working at a company where my title at the time was Program Manager for Custom Engineering. (laughs) And when you think about that title, that's like the diametric opposite of product. (laughs)
1: Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) And, And yet, you know, what I was really doing was product management. So, this was at a company called Avid Technology. And the background there was that Avid was a well known name in the Hollywood industry. So, Avid was a product that was used for video editing. And, you know, pretty much every Oscar winning movie was made using Avid products. And when Avid wanted to move from Hollywood to the broadcast industry and into newsrooms, you know, they didn't have a huge budget after this because you have a cash cow. You can't now divest from your cash cow into this new, um, into this new industry. And so, you know, my role was in custom engineering and I had to work with broadcasters to figure out, you know, what custom features do you need on top of our Hollywood product to be able to meet your needs for the newsroom. And what I was really doing was figuring out, Okay, let's figure out what is truly custom versus here's what the broadcast industry actually needs. And, well, would you partner with us to pay for some of this engineering effort and we can work on those features? And, you know, by partnering with us, we both benefit. We'll build a product that's really solid, that's not all custom engineered. And then we're going to grow this over time together. So my role, if you think about it in the end, that's really product management. Yeah, that's it is. where I realized that it's a way of thinking where no matter what your role says you're doing, you're constantly thinking about what's the vision for change. And then how are you going to translate that into your everyday action and a product that's going to work for, to be able to bring about that change
1: yeah yeah I, I really like the idea of thinking of a product as uh the mechanism for change we don't typically look at it in that light and it's it's really pretty pretty neat thinking well what about culture i mean culture must be in here somewhere right every time you talk about any kind of innovation you know the culture question can come up what's your thoughts on that
0: yeah i feel like even culture is something we can think about as a product mm. you know when i think of companies and every time we ever talk about oh we need a culture change in our organization you can just see people rolling their eyes like oh here we go again you know culture (laughs) like this nebulous idea
1: yeah yeah
0: and instead even there we can think about culture as a product it's your mechanism to innovate to be able to have these high performing teams so once You know, you have a vision for culture, which is, okay, what do you need for high-performing teams? And the answer to that, uh, I love the book by Dan Pink. It's called Driven. It's, uh, it talks about, you know, what people need is not external motivators, but these internal motivators that a high-performing team wants to feel like they're learning together. There's this learning behavior all together. They feel this shared sense of purpose. And the last thing is they feel autonomy. And if you think about culture and a lot of what I've talked about in terms of having this clarity of vision, well, that gives you that shared purpose. The next thing you need is this learning behavior. And that's where, you know, we want to create uh, psychological safety. And I'll talk about how do we create that in the organization in a moment. But the one other thing I want to talk about that's close, more closely related to vision is autonomy. One of the reasons we wanna have such a detailed vision as a leader is so that we give our teams autonomy in terms of decision-making. When you have a clear vision, you can then give teams more autonomy so that they can make decisions in line with this vision. The additional thing you can give to teams in addition to this vision is the sense of how do you make trade-offs as a leader? helping your team think about how you think about the long-term versus short-term trade-off. And when you ha- give them that rationale, they're able to make those trade-offs without you having to be in every meeting and dictate those priorities. And that gives them a sense of autonomy. So how do you do this as a leader? The framework that you know I share with leadership teams is this vision versus survival framework. It's this two-by-two of think of your y-axis as vision fit, is this good for your vision or not? And your X axis is, is this good for short-term survival or not? And so if you're doing things that are both good for the vision and good for short-term survival, well, great, you know, that's an easy decision. But more often than not, you know, you don't just have easy decisions. And in fact, if you're only sticking to easy decisions, right. <laughs> we're, we're failing as a leader you maybe, miss right? out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right.. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, we yeah. have
0: to invest in the vision, and this is where it's good for the long-term vision, but in the short term, maybe it's not good for the vision. So an example of this would be maybe you're spending three months refactoring code, or you know you have your cash cow, but you have to invest in something that's not your cash cow that's an upcoming product. And the opposite of investing in the vision is taking on vision debt. And this is where, do you remember the obsessive sales disorder? <laughs> we yeah,
1: talked Exactly, it was what was coming to my mind. I think, okay, I know where this is, <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Exactly, so vision debt happens when we're constantly doing things that are good for survival, like that custom feature that maybe someone's asking for, but it's not good for the long-term vision. And, you know, sometimes you have to do this, and you have to do this occasionally, but if you start seeing a trend where you're taking on a lot of this vision debt, that's where you start to see obsessive sales disorder. Yes. And so in terms of conveying your rationale to your team, think about either opportunities or features or tasks, initiatives, etc., that you're doing as a company. Where do they fall on this matrix of vision versus survival? Uh, just for completeness, you know, I didn't talk about the danger quadrant, which is bad for vision and bad for survival, but no one's really asking for those features. So there aren't many things in the danger quadrant. Those are also easy decisions, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so the, the harder decisions are investing in the vision versus building vision debt and doing more things that are in the easy decision, the ideal quadrant of good mm. for vision and survival. And so as a leader, how are you going to balance decisions? How often are you willing to invest in the vision? That tells you how often are you willing to invest in the long term versus, you know, maybe you're a bootstrapped company. You have no choice but to take on vision debt. The important thing is to acknowledge it, right? And as a leader, you're telling your team, this is kind of the mode that we're operating in right now. But as you communicate how you make those decisions, you give your team autonomy so that they're able to think about the vision what is important for survival and make those decisions when you're not in the room and so as a team you're creating psychological safety by giving your team this vision the communication in terms of uh, you know how you think about rationale question those decisions and debate you know is this good for the vision or not etc all of that contributes to psychological safety and in the book i give a more clear framework to think about how you think about your culture in this format to be able to create psychological safety very systematically. But you know, for a podcast, I'll say that this is how we kind of the quick overview, so that we can really create internal drive within our team, because it's not necessarily just bonuses that motivates our team.
1: Right, right, right. Talk about culture. I mean, who wouldn't want to work for an organization where they kind of knew where they were on that four by four, gr- uh, two by two grid, right? Why they're on the grid, uh, where they are, uh, where they want to get to. Maybe they're happy where they are. Maybe they want to change it. And then how do teams then make decisions within the lens of that? I mean, that's got, you know, you're now self empowering people and, and, and it's just, the culture behind, the cultural aspects behind that are are just awesome. Because people ask, wow, how do I build a culture of innovation? Well, you know, that's not an easy question to answer. But I think you gave a framework there that I could see how that could really, really set a culture. Some people may or may not work well within it. I know I personally would. I would love to be in an organization that uh, could articulate its, its vision and its current state through a lens like that.
0: Exactly. I love what you said, because, you know, it's this framework for innovation, right? Because very often we perceive innovation as something that happens because a leader at the top has a vision and everyone is just following along and making that vision come alive. You know, in the book, for example, I talk about Tesla But very often people think that, oh, Tesla's innovation happened because, oh, Elon Musk had a vision. And I really wanna challenge that perspective. It happened more despite Elon Musk than because of Elon Musk, right? And many people I know who were amazing employees at Tesla left because of his management style rather than stayed because of it, right? So what the way innovation works is not because of just one leader having a vision, Yes, someone had a vision at the top, and yes, Elon Musk had a vision, but really, it was people underneath who were incredibly capable who made that vision their own and systematically translated that into every part of the car. If you look at the engine in the Model 3, at least at the time when the the Model 3 came out, and I don't know if it's still true... At least at the time when Model 3 came out, that engine was the only electric vehicle that had the haul effect in its engine, which gave it like a 40% boost in performance, right? There was an auto expert who picked apart this engine and said that he couldn't figure out how they would make this work in manufacturing processes. But this vision for Tesla was translated into how this engine was designed, how it came together in manufacturing. Like there was no way that one person could figure out all of this despite, you know, popular myths, right? And so what we need is not one leader who sounds grand. We need a whole culture of innovation. And if we cannot create this culture, you know, amazing people leave. And especially when we're dealing with an economic some economic uncertainty where people yeah. have options, could work elsewhere. True. There are layoffs, etc., where morale wasn't as great as it was maybe a couple of years ago. You know, we really need to transform our culture into this culture of innovation. And that's what we need, this clarity of vision, framework for thinking about priorities that conveys your rationale as opposed to dictating priorities as a leader.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, You will retain people like crazy because of culture, right? They will stick and they will stay. And you're right. Elon Musk certainly wasn't the person who said, here's this engine and here's this, here's how it's going to be built and engineered, right? But somehow, uh, his company did. And what was going through my mind as you were, you were going through that was I was thinking back to one of the, you know, Steve Jobs in the early days of Apple and the sense of, shared perspective that he created in that company. He was relentless in his pursuit of, of clean design and, and certain things that he believed he had to do. Even, even his first round with Apple, he was that way, but, but you know, that company didn't make those products because he thought them up, right? That company made those products cause they all shared that, that kind of that vision and they all had different pieces and parts to make that product. So I, yeah, so many good examples of when that works.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I love the Steve Jobs example that you were sharing because another myth that came about from the Steve Jobs example is not just that he uh, was the leader and the visionary and everyone was following, but also that he was this visionary who knew exactly what customers wanted. That, you know, there was no user research that was needed. Uh, In fact, this idea that you don't ask people what they want, you have to give it to them. And this myth is often used to say, well, I don't need to do user research. I know what customers need. One thing that is not generally talked about, but it is very true, is Apple did tons of user research. If you even... Think about how perfectly clickety-click those Apple keyboards are. Even that was what came out of all this user research. Yes, it's true that he didn't ask customers what they want, meaning that you can't ask them directly, what do you want? And you can't expect them to design the iPhone on your behalf. But what he did understand and what people at Apple understood and what led to that iPhone, that first iPhone, was the understanding that people needed a device that they could interact with, not just using text, because back in the day, in two thousand and seven, you know, before that, like there used to be WAP phones where
1: oh, yeah. every company
0: used to, every company used to say, "Oh, this is going to be the year of three G," and that never came along. Why? Because people had these phones that you could only interact with using Indeed. text, <laughs> and imagine browsing where you know you can't type A B C; you had to like type. To type a c you had to press a key three times yeah it was just painful right and so what apple realized was that we were never going to move to 3g until the interface completely changed that you could interact with your device using voice text and uh, and specifically not just text but like using a touchpad as opposed to uh, having these keys that you pressed multiple times and so That's how the iPhone was born. It was based on understanding these pain points at that level of depth and understanding what users actually needed. And so one of the fundamentals of innovation is being able to do user research, not by asking people what do you want and getting people to design, but rather by understanding pain points and understanding how do you ask those questions in a way that you're not leading your witness, but really figuring out what they need.
1: Yeah. I don't want to talk too much about Apple but there was a photo that just came out just a few, few days ago actually there's some archive now that's releasing famous photos and it's showing Steve Jobs was I think it's way back with the Macintosh he's walking along a street and the photo is of him is looking like from a street through a through a window a ground floor window there was a person using a Macintosh and you just see her back. So her back is to the window, computers behind her, and he's bent over at this angle, just staring. And you know, he's, he's watching. He's saying, how is this person using my product? Right? He, he's trying to glean as much just from standing outside, you know, looking through that window. It was so cool. And it's exactly what you were saying. You gotta, you gotta really study, uh, what people want and, and how they use your product
0: right exactly uh, and i am gonna go look up this picture afterwards that's
1: sounds- yeah I'll, I'll send it to you yeah oh, definitely yeah, yeah thank
0: you
1: you know the other thing so so uh the book is fantastic and everybody has to go get a copy of it my, my advice is run get a copy of it but you also have a f- fantastic website that's related to it as well and and you do more you do training you do a lot of things tell us tell us about that part of of what you're doing
0: yeah. So the website is radicalproductthinking.com and what uh, it offers is uh, a blog where I talk about a lot of these ideas from the book, but also very different ideas. In fact, I don't repeat many stories from the book at all. So the book is a very worthy reading on its own. But what I do based on the book is a lot of trainings and workshops. So I work with organizations to help them figure out How do you define your vision at that level of detail so that you can actually give your team enough direction? You know, because the analogy I like to use is you're giving your team a blueprint to build the product when you create this level of clarity in your vision. You know, think about a construction team. If you just show a construction team a nice 3D rendering. Uh, saying, you know, here's the house that I want. They wouldn't know what to do with it. What they need is actually the blueprints to be able to say, okay, here's what I'm going to actually lay out in terms of a foundation. And so I help teams uh, work through their vision and then translate that vision into a strategy that is really grounded in what is the pain that makes someone come to your product? Then based on that, what's your solution? Then what's your engine under that product, uh, under that solution? like both the technology but also partnerships relationships and then finally how does that relate to your business model your sales channels etc so a comprehensive strategy that's not a fluffy page, one page document that says we're going to invest 10 right. million and get out a return of <laughs> yeah. you know 50 million yeah. right
1: Yeah, that's the easy part, yeah.
0: (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And then, you know, uh, using this framework to be able to translate that into everyday decision making. So this is the set of uh, workshops and trainings that I help teams through. But most importantly, I also work with organizations in transforming from a project to a product mindset. Uh, And, you know, we often call this product-led transformation. And Mm -hmm. I actually avoid the words product-led because I like to think about it as vision-driven as opposed to product-led. You know, product-led usually causes this allergic reaction in large organizations, where people within the organization feel like, "But wait, does this mean uh, my engineering function is no longer in power, or is this changing yeah, the power you dynamics with sales?" just don't have that
1: conversation. Yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly, it detracts from the purpose, and so we're being vision-driven is the answer. And that's what product-led transformation is about. So I, take, uh, I help organizations take a very systematic approach to product-led transformation so that we can transform to being this vision-driven company and systematically transform vision into everyday action.
1: And I can just tell by your voice, you love doing what you do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do, I really do. And you know, this is one thing that people always say about my workshops. Where there's so much passion that goes into yeah. workshops, where you know, let's say it's a two-hour workshop, I often forget to give people breaks. It's something I. <laughs> it's something I have to learn, right? And so, because <laughs> I'm so yes. into this, and we're working through this live, these are authentic workshops, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, yes, but it's a lot of fun as we we work through these things.
1: You know, and you're such a dynamite speaker. People can contact you and, and uh, ask you to be a keynote speaker at their events. And if anybody's thinking about doing that, I highly recommend it. Because when you spoke at ours, you got a standing ovation. Everybody loved it. It was really great. It was just afterwards for, for hours, people talking on and on about how great it was. So.
0: Oh, thank you. You know, it just means a lot to me because I look at what I do as a product, a product that creates change, Right. And I look at a speaking engagement as a product. And Mm. that was one of the things that I measure success by, like was that talk able to create change? And, you know, it made me so happy after that talk at Sofian where so many people just from sales, from engineering, from design, people came up to me and were telling me how they're going to apply these ideas to their work. And I felt like, yes, you know, that to me, Felt like I had made a difference. That product was working.
1: That's great. Well, what's next for you? What's on your kind of your 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 radar? Things you're you're going to do next?
0: Well, at the moment, I'm really enjoying working with organizations on doing this product-led transformation, and I take a holistic approach, which I find really satisfying. Which is that it's not just about offering trainings, but really how do you Address some of the structural issues within the organization. So, working with leadership to think through the hard stuff and how do you create this change very systematically, right? Including organizational issues. But one of the things that I'm seeing as I work through uh, this transformation with organizations is. I think there's another book to be written about how do you transform organizations to be yeah. vision driven the, the engineering guide or like how to engineer <laughs> change in your in your organization right? <laughs> um, and so that's i think probably a book that i want to work on next
1: well if anybody can write that book you can <laughs> so Thank i look you. forward to anything you you either write in your blog about it or you write in a book about it well, Radhika, this has been an awful lot of a real fun conversation. I really appreciate you stopping by to share some of your ideas and thoughts with uh, with our listeners. Any last comments before we kind of wrap it up?
0: Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm hoping that we do a part two of it, in fact.
1: Let's do that. I would love that. I, I can already hear the fan mail coming in, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do that. Great, Radhika. Well, thanks again for, for everything and and, and uh, keep in touch. And for you out there, there's plenty of notes, show notes, uh, all these links will be there that we've been talking about. So you can contact Radhika through the websites, great way to just get in touch with her and, and find out more.
0: Yeah, and on that note, actually, I love it when people uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn, you're very welcome to do that. And I try to be accessible because, you know, to me, being on this earth is about creating change. And I am very happy to talk to you about your journey in creating change.
1: Good, good. Glad to hear you're out on LinkedIn, too. That's a great place to uh, to connect with people. Okay. Have a great week, Radhika.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, you bet. Thanks for coming by. I'm I'm the one who's grateful. Thank you. And I hope you all enjoyed that. That was really, uh, really fun. Do reach out, contact Radhika, follow what she's doing. Follow her on LinkedIn. Follow her website. Enjoy the, the material. And as I said, if you want a speaker for your next event, contact Radhika. Take care. Have a great week, y'all, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.